Welcome, my friends, to the Bob and Brad podcast. My name is Mike Keenitz, and today I'm interviewing Dr. Stuart McGill, who is an expert on back pain. His laboratory and experimental research clinic investigated issues related to casual mechanisms of back pain, how to rehabilitate back pain people, and enhance both injury resilience and performance. So without further ado, here is Dr. Stuart McGill. Well, welcome back to the program, Stuart McGill. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Mike. Today, we're going to be talking about back pain. But before we get going, would you mind giving our audience a brief story of your background? No pun intended there. I was a professor for over 30 years at the University of Waterloo. Uh, When I started, uh, I only had one question, and it was to investigate how does the spine work? And we developed techniques to measure stress concentrations in the various parts of the back. And it was interesting that the pain that individuals reported was almost always related to where the stress concentration was in their back. And we learned that if they moved uh, into a certain posture, that would increase the stress and their pain and moving away from it, uh, decreased their their pain and stress. Then we created a a cadaver lab where we would take spines and then apply the stresses to various parts to see what kind of injuries uh, occurred. And that helped us complete the loop in studying real people and then uh, cadaveric spines. And then we started an experimental research clinic, which was rather unique because uh, we started with two-hour assessments, and my medical colleague said to me, what are you going to do for two hours? And I said, we're going to, first of all, listen to their story, do pattern recognition, try and understand all of the variables that were leading uh, them to be uh, disabled with pain, and then uh, assess them very thoroughly to get a precise understanding of the pain pathway and then address it either by eliminating the uh, pain causing uh, mechanism or changing something in their life to address that. Once the pain was wound down, we could then build them from the ground up to regain athleticism. And the other unique part, Mike, was we followed up with every patient we ever saw in the history of the clinic. It's the only clinic in the world that I know that has done that. So we know our clinical score depending on the various subcategories of pain that the person had. So that was the story of, well, 40 years now. <laughs> so where can people find out more information about you and your books? Well, there's no need to find information about me. It's about them. And uh, I've uh, written uh, several clinical textbooks for my medical colleagues, but I wrote a book for the lay public who are suffering uh, with back pain. It's called Back Mechanic. It guides them through a self-assessment of their pain and then gives them thoughts on how to wind down that pain and then rebuild, as I described earlier. Uh, It's available on our website, which is backfitpro.com, just as it sounds. Uh, If they're looking for a clinician who's 
trained in our techniques. They are listed on that website as well. Um, or they can buy the book from Amazon as well. <laughs> Everything's on Amazon now. It, it, I'm, I'm afraid most of it is. Okay, we're going to get into the back pain question. So the first question is, how does stress affect back pain? I'm assuming you're talking about mental stress. Yeah, I suppose there's physical stress too. We're going to talk about mental stress. All right. I don't see a great dichotomy or a separation between mental and physical stress the way many people do. And the reason I say that uh, is this. My colleague, uh, another spine professor at Ohio State University, Bill Maris, has done some really interesting studies where he took groups of workers. Uh, now, before he started, he did personality profiling on them. Then they would work at their factory job, and it was a ruse. One of his graduate students would come in and pretend to be doing a scientific experiment. Then he would come in and really berate the graduate student, create a lot of mental stress, a very stressful situation. And then he, he, he measured the response of the worker. Then the, the graduate student said, oh, we've got to repeat this experiment. And then they remeasured the physical stresses on their body. As it turns out, people who have a very, uh, shall I say, a timid, uh, subservient kind of personality, the mental stress was manifested in their body. They began to crush their joints with more uh, uh, overactivation of their muscles as they tensed up. Uh, those who had a more overt, outgoing kind of personality, it was like water off a duck's back. They didn't change the physical stresses. So how a person handles mental stress uh, is personality linked as one variable in the example I'm using now. So the next question is... Uh, all biological systems thrive on stress, whether it's mental or physical. No stress, you have a weak, very unrobust, fragile system. Stress causes adaptations that make it uh, more robust, but every system is governed by a tipping point. If the stress is below the tipping point, it's building, it's anabolic, it makes the person more robust. If it crosses the tipping point, then uh, things happen to the various systems that cause them to break down. If it's a tissue, then the, the tissue eventually uh, will become injured. Being physically fit, there's a psychological and a physical robustness profile that goes along with that. When a person comes in and they say, you know, the last time I sneezed or I tied my shoe, I had an acute attack in my back. If we teach them a movement hack, so if it turns out they sneeze, put you down this way, and they have a type of a disc bulge that that is triggered by a loaded flexion pulse, then we show them that that was their mechanism after we've attested and established that, and we show them sneeze up, a chew. And they have now 
uh, bulletproofed themselves from future attacks. So the physicality and the movement hack gave them mental uh, confidence. Or they might say, oh, I threw my back out when I tied my shoe. Well, we might, again, establish their mechanism to be flexing and bending forward. If we showed them, you know, they could tie their shoe this way, which uh, doesn't give them confidence and it might trigger their back pain. But if we showed them to put their foot up, push the knee ahead, take the hips down to the target, being the heel of the foot, and then tie the shoe, move the hips out of it, they didn't go near their physical pain trigger, and now the mental anxiety evaporates. So mental and physical stresses go together. Our interventions are always targeting both. That's, that's a lot of thought put into that. That's a good answer. Uh, well, <laughs> hopefully that's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, our next question is, does sitting too much cause back pain? Well, every question you ask me, uh, I have to pause and, and put thought into it because these are not simple questions. The epidemiological studies that study the incidence and prevalence of back pain in the population show that in general, those who sit more and longer have more back pain. They also have other uh, illnesses. My, my friend uh, Kelly Starrett, for example, I think his book is called Sitting is the New Smoking. There's a whole host of cardiovascular concerns with prolonged sitting, uh, back pain, uh, etc. But now I'm going to give you the other side of the coin. Let's take someone getting to my age now when they were younger, sitting caused their back pain. Going for a walk was relieving. But then when they get older, the spine becomes a little bit more stenotic, a little bit more arthritic. And then they will say, you know what? Going for a walk hurts my back and sitting provides the relief. So if I did an epidemiological study on the broad population, it would show no effect. But if we study young people and then older people, you get a differential story and impression on uh, sitting. Um, now, let me add to uh, this story a little bit more and talk about uh, young people. If a person sits slouched for eight hours at the computer, they are stressing the posterior part of the annulus of the disc, which in of itself may not be that problematic. If they have an open fissured disc bulge, which I can show there, you can see as, as I'm bending this joint forward, the collagen fibers uh, split and delaminate um, and the nucleus creates a little uh, bubble or uh, a small bulge. But if I posture the spine upright and squeeze, you see the whole disc uh, change shape, but it doesn't drive the bulge posteriorly. So it's a hydraulic uh, effect. Well, I said 
this has to be combined with something else. So let's say the person then goes to the gym for one hour at night or 45 minutes and lifts with very poor form. They're not relieving the eight hours of stress on that annulus from sitting. They're actually compounding it by moving poorly under load at the gym. And now they think it's so unfair. They sit for eight hours, they get back pain, they go to the gym and they get even more uh, back pain when they sit. Had they been conscious to move better and not stress the uh, annulus in the gym, that would have built uh, robustness. So sometimes it's very difficult to ferret out the links between these various things like sitting uh, uh, and anything else. But the, the, the bottom line message to all of this is uh, if they're at the gym and they sit for eight hours as part of their job, it's more important to use the hips when they're at the gym using uh, hip hinging, for example, to pick up a load rather than uh, their spine uh, and that kind of thing. Be careful with uh, exercises that put the spine under load and big uh, movements uh, and, and rotations. So there's a little bit of a, an essay, I suppose, on becoming more resilient and uh, does sitting cause pain? Oh, I, I should also mention rest breaks. Say a person uh, sits at a computer, the rest break shouldn't be sitting in the lunchroom. It should be going for a walk. It's the mechanical opposite to relieve the stress. But let's take someone else who's a, uh, uh, they walk for their job. I, I guess in the old days, it would be a postman. There aren't very many postmen left anymore. But say they're a carpenter or a plumber, then sitting down could be their rest break. So there's a lot of moving parts to your, your question, but I hope that little essay gives some guidance as to uh, does sitting too much cause back pain? It may and it may not. Yeah, I used to work in the clinics a lot more in therapy, and like I typically walk three miles a day around these large facilities. And the last few years, I've been sitting down a lot more, and I've figured out that I need like every hour, I need to get up and move around or stretch or do something because it's just gets old sitting in that long of time on your back. Well, that would be part and parcel of our uh, very thorough assessment that we do. We find the thresholds that cause pain and the thresholds that produce relief. So if, if uh, walking once every hour works for you, that's fabulous. And other people, it might be every 30 minutes, just go for a three-minute walk. Or I think we're going to talk about stretching later, but I could also give some specific stretches that combat the cumulative stresses of sitting in some people. Sure. All right, we'll go on to our next question. So how does obesity contribute to back pain? That is a fabulous question. I've been involved in several uh, lawsuits as an expert witness actually around this issue. So it's, it's uh, very, very interesting. We recognize that there are many different pathways to back pain. Consider the obese person with the kind of obesity where the belly comes down and hangs right on the thighs. We would consider that a massive hydraulic jack. 
So if a person has spine instability, and I'm going to use this model to demonstrate what exactly that is. This disc is normal, it's not injured. And this disc is normal, it's not injured. This one is injured. It's lost stiffness and stability. So if I apply a general movement torque to the top of the spine, you can see how most of the movement is occurring at the joint that is lost controlling stiffness. Those are called micro movements in a shear mode. Those trigger off shots of pain. And uh, clinically, the person says, oh, no, uh, I move this way and my right toe goes numb. I move that way and the pain flashes into my gluteals. Uh, now it's on the left side of my back. A person that reports that kind of migrating uh, pain uh, is usually has some joint instability. Well, that obese person that we were talking about doesn't have that migrating type of, of pain profile very often. It's very rare. Then uh, they uh, have a concerted effort to lose a lot of weight. So interesting, once they've lost the weight, they now have unstable pain patterns in their back. So they've now increased their pain because they lost the weight. Um, there, I've, some of the lawsuits I've been involved in is uh, surgeons, for example, who will say to a woman who has a large chest, that is causing your back pain. We're going to surgically reduce the size and the mass and therefore uh, reduce your back pain. And it wasn't working out very well. And there was a lawsuit and I was asked would I offer some uh, uh, expertise. Every single one of these women was in the obese category. Whether they had a breast reduction or not, the effect on their spine was so minimal that it, it really wasn't changing their back pain. But if you take a non-obese woman uh, who is considering a breast reduction, then you do the test. And the test is simply this. Um, stand and put your fingers and your thumb on the erector spinae, and you will find a switch point. If I cock my chin forward and poke it, you will feel the erector spinae become active and that activity adds compressive load to the spine. Can I bring my hips forward and retract my chin to shut those muscles off? If I can, I can now stand in a very relaxed uh, manner and those muscles aren't chronically contracted into a muscle cramp. But a woman who uh, has more mass anteriorly, uh, they have great difficulty in shutting off those back muscles. So in the non-obese, you see it becomes more of an issue and quite possibly that is the mechanism of their chronic uh, fatigue muscle um, ache. Anyway, there's a, a little bit of a, an essay, I suppose, weight, uh, can also, just as it loads knees and feet and ankles and causes chronic pain, it can also cause that in the back. But a very thorough uh, assessment will lead the person and their clinician towards the right intervention for that particular subcategory of back pain that they have. But it's not as clear cut as people think. So if someone 
loses weight and you work with them and they still have back pain, do you just work on core stability or? Well, we don't just do well. anything. <laughs> we, we refine the mechanism with some precision through uh, uh, the assessment. And then we allow the results of the assessment to guide us as to what they need. Generally speaking, if they now have joint instability in the micro movements triggering pain, we will give them stabilization exercise. We will change, uh, say they are doing full end range stretching uh, that is causing the laxity to continue or something else in their life that we can intervene on and, and make a difference. Um, so it might be uh, a core stabilization. Maybe they have a, a stiff hip or, well, well, you know, it could be anything, you know, Mike. Uh, yeah, there's no right, correct answer for everyone. Exactly. So our next question is, how does smoking affect back pain? Ah. <laughs> smoking is such an interesting uh, variable because it has a delayed effect on health. You know, there are people right now who are saying, oh, posture doesn't matter in, in terms of back pain. Well, if you studied a group of young people who smoked, you, you wouldn't find the link with cancer because it takes a long time of exposure to smoke to uh, create the cancer. <clears throat> the same with posture and the same with all of these other things. It's a very delayed effect. And, you know, you go back into history and look at the smoking, uh, the, the smoking lobby in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and how effective they were at delaying legislation that would help prevent uh, cancer. So it's a, it's a fascinating um, topic. We studied smokers who were now end stage. They developed uh, COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, I guess. Their lungs had lost elasticity. A healthy lung uses the diaphragm to contract and suck air in. Uh, and then the elasticity allows the air to uh, expire. People who've smoked and now have COPD have lost the elasticity and they breathe with their spine. What we would measure was they would inspire with spine extension and then expire with spine flexion. So every breath was a load on their spine and now we could measure why they had back pain. So there was an example of how smoking over time led to uh, their back pain and we would call that a disease of choice because smoking was uh, a choice, but it's a very horrible situation to be in at the uh, end of life. Um, there are many other uh, pathways that have been proposed that we haven't directly measured, but those who measure uh, smokers and smokers cough, for example, the coughing mechanism. Uh, if a person has a cold, they'll say, uh, if they're susceptible to this, oh, after I had my cold, I, I had real problems with my foot going numb as I bent forward. And that would have obviously been stress on the uh, disc. So coughing, 
they're, again, a different fitness profile in smokers versus non-smokers. All of these things have been suggested, although we haven't directly investigated them. Sure. I liked your uh, mustache coffee mug there. <laughs> yeah, I get these uh, gifts, and and this one, uh, it's it's kind of fun. You have to guess whose mustache it was based on <laughs> the uh, code and the answers on the bottom of the mug. I think I'm close to uh, uh, nine, and uh, oh, uh, oh, Friedrich Nitschke, <laughs> and uh, who is uh, nine? Yes. And number 12, Leon Trotsky. I, I, I know he was a Russian. I don't know any more about that. I was going to say, I don't know half of those names. Okay, next question. I guess back on subject here. Are there <laughs> any specific sleeping positions for back pain relief? May I introduce some mechanics of sleep to give a perspective on the spine and then that will allow me to give a reasonable answer sure okay the discs of the spine are avascular they have no blood supply so the discs receive nutrition every day and wash out the waste metabolites by a diurnal variation Throughout the day, you squeeze the spine with hydrostatic compression from daily activity, which squeezes fluids out of the disc. And during the day, uh, night, you, with osmotic pressure, suck up fluids through the end plate uh, of the uh, disc, through the uh, top and bottom. So that diurnal flow is a requirement for uh, a healthy spine. Well, now we're going back to the end of the former Soviet regime, and this is kind of an interesting story. Uh, the uh, former Soviet bloc uh, had a conference in Poland, and I happened to be the Canadian delegate who was invited to review the Soviet cosmonaut science that no one had ever uh, seen before. And as you know, when you go into space, the concern is becoming osteoporotic. There's not load to stimulate bone and you lose it. Well, their data suggested that you lose bone throughout your body, except in two places, your spine and your skull. And when you go into space, your lymphatics on Earth are, are milking against gravity, pulling fluid up. Uh, as soon as you go into space and you lose gravity, your face swells. You get what's called a puffy face syndrome, but your brain swells so much that it pushes, puts pressure on the skull and actually builds mineral content. But the discs also swell and put the spine under stress. Uh, the American uh, astronaut data, coupled with the cosmonaut uh, data, show that a lot of uh, astronauts and cosmonauts are actually on painkillers for spine pain because of the extra expansion. It can be two inches in uh, uh, some spacemen. So what is the equivalent on Earth? And I'm sorry for that background, but it motivated a study that we did with students where we put them to bed for 36 hours and measured their uh, spines swelling. Uh, their spines kept growing even after eight hours of bed rest until they went into stress. 
You can imagine having the flu and laying in bed all day. Chances are you will have spine pain because uh, of the swollen discs. The optimal amount of bed rest time for most people is about eight hours. If you stay in bed longer than that, they continue to swell and you actually create uh, more back pain. So now let's talk about uh, sleeping positions. When people uh, wake up in the morning, some say, you know, I've got back pain. And I said, good, describe the character to me. And they say, it's an ache and it's right. And they can put their thumb right where that back pain is. And I'll say, ah, um, lay on your other side or take a folded pillow and put it under your waist in that position or lay and push one heel away. In other words, change the micro posture just a little bit. Does that change your pain? And if they say yes, we then measure to see if they have joint instability and it almost always is. So they lay on their side and the joint cocks off a little bit to one side, causes the ache and the familiar symptom in a single location. And yet when they adjust that, that very specific ache uh, uh, goes away, or it might be a numbness in their toe, uh, uh, for example. Um, but the next person doesn't have that. They might have a swollen disc and that particular disc uh, might have a disc bulge in it or a fractured end plate or something, a micro fracture. And their kind of pain is just a general stiffness uh, in their back. So what they might do is pull their knees to their chest to try and alleviate that. Um, that can be problematic because when they pull their knees to their chest, they fire off a stretch reflex which their brain interprets as an analgesia. The analgesia lasts 15 minutes and then they have that ache and the want to stretch uh, all over again. So uh, this was studied uh, through the Liberty Mutual uh, Insurance Company. Uh, Professor Snook uh, led that study and uh, he asked those people to avoid pulling their knees to their chest and forward bending just in the morning. And that particular subcategory of pain uh, resolved. So you asked me about uh, positions. There is no position for uh, all people, just like everything else in back pain. Do a thorough assessment, figure out the cause, and then lead the person to their uh, sleeping posture that migrates the stress away from the pain mechanism. A disc bulge, certain types of disc bulges, the person might get relief by sleeping on their tummy. A person who has a little bit more of an arthritic trigger, that would be poison, terrible position. Um, can I finish off talking about mattress types? Yeah, go ahead. There's a little bit of a science that's been established uh, on this. And uh, we started it actually with our study putting students to bed, we, we then were asked to do a contract on different mattress types and measure the uh, mechanics. And we created the fidget index and all these kinds of things. We would watch people sleep with infrared uh, cameras and count the fidgets and measure the spine stress and that kind of thing. Um, 
you've heard of a memory foam style of uh, mattress. Uh, the body heat causes the person to create their own mold down into the mattress. Those seem to suit heavier men that snore. It sounds like a funny category, but typically they're heavier. They lay on their back and they don't change position. And those are the people who report great comfort with a memory foam. You take someone who's a bit more fidgety and they're changing sides throughout the night, the memory foam turns into a problem because their body sinks down into the memory shape and they have to do work to climb up out of the depression and roll over onto the other side. So for those people, we found that a stiffer uh, mattress foundation with a very generous pillow top, because generally they are, are not so heavy and they have uh, uh, bonier hips and shoulders and that kind of thing. So a firmer foundation with a generous pillow top was a preferable mattress for that particular body type and sleeping style. So there you go. There's a little bit of an essay on uh, astronauts all the way through <laughs> to uh, choosing a mattress. <laughs> I'm learning about so many variety of studies in this podcast. It's all fascinating to me. <laughs> well, that, that, was, that was what we did. Our questions throughout my career as a uh, scientist we would listen to clinicians and uh, ask, you know, what, what do you need answers to? And they would give us the questions. And if we couldn't answer them, well, that became the topic of our next uh, study. So that was our uh, MO for 30 some odd years. This was Waterloo. That's in Canada, I'm guessing, right? Yes, University of Waterloo, yeah. There's a Waterloo, Iowa, but you told me you're from Canada, so I got confused for a minute. Uh, yeah, it was uh, University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. All right, next question. Gets a little long here. Are there any alternative therapies for back pain relief that you endorse? And for our audience, I'm referring stuff like acupuncture, chiropractic care, massage therapy, and mindfulness techniques. Right. I don't endorse or condemn any single thing. There's always been someone somewhere who has been helped and hurt by every single one of those things that you uh, mentioned. So again, I have to go to scientific principles to create a logical uh, answer and a uh, logical application to help the individual. So the first tenant there is, let's take chiropractic since you mentioned it. If you went with the same person to three different chiropractors, would the experience be identical? And I think the answer is no. So going to see a chiropractor is, is very dependent on who you go and see. Uh, many of the clinicians who are in our BackFit Pro family of clinicians or chiropractors, uh, and they will not manipulate a person. Uh, they uh, are, are very savvy in a broad spectrum of uh, intervention. So they match it to the uh, individual. Um, take a person who has joint instability, which I showed uh, with the model. 
uh, it doesn't make sense to apply a chiropractic manipulation to that. It would probably make them worse. And yet I could tell a story. Uh, we had a, uh, an Olympian who competed both at the Winter Olympics and the Summer Olympics. Uh, they had a particular uh, type of uh, back pain. We were able to address it. We changed their training. They got rid of the acute pain triggers, but they still had a little nag, and it turned out to be in the quadratus lumborum. Just on one side, I couldn't get that one muscle to quieten down. I sent them to one of our chiropractic colleagues, and with three manipulations over three days, it was gone. So we've also measured, by the way, and investigated the mechanics of uh, chiropractic. Uh, sometimes they quieten down local muscle spasms. Sometimes they induce local muscle spasms. So do you see, no one can, can endorse or condemn any uh, one of these things. I think of, uh, I, I did the keynote lecture at the uh, International Fascia meetings this, this past fall. And our experience with uh, fascial pain and some of the myofascial syndromes is uh, someone who has pain triggered throughout their body with a specific movement, they've been traumatized. In other words, the brain is perceiving that fascial stress uh, as pain. And if they draw their pain map, they show, oh, they get a headache, they get pain in their swirling around their shoulders and swirling around the hips. It's a very swirly kind of expression of the pain. And, uh, you know, now it's time to have a, a little bit of a psychological intervention, a little bit of confidence from graded exposure to the movement that is causing that particular kind of pain trigger. Um, there are some massage therapists and rolfers who just generally massage and, and they might cause more pain sensitivity in a person with joint laxity, but less in someone with the situation I was just describing in fascia. You go to the next massage person and they're very targeted. They leave a lot of the tissues alone and they just might release a psoas, for example, for someone who is sitting a long period of time, getting out of the chair and having a problem getting back to upright because of what we would measure, not guess, measure to be a tonic tone, if you will, uh, in their psoas uh, specifically. So. There's a little bit of an essay, I suppose. Um, a thorough assessment, once again, I sound like a broken record, gives the understanding of the specificity of the pain pathway of that particular person and will guide the appropriate intervention that could involve any of those things. I have colleagues around the world in all of those professions who I would refer individuals to at certain points in time. I heard you reference once on a different podcast you did that people often think of back pain as one thing. And then you said, do you ever say I have leg pain? No, you say I have ankle, knee, hip pain. When you say back pain, he's like, there's so many nuances. And I just, I don't think a lot of people realize that. 
Yeah, you know, this term, oh, you've got nonspecific back pain, and scientists will study people with nonspecific back pain. I've never read a single study in my life of someone who has nonspecific head pain. It doesn't exist. I think it's an excuse by clinicians who are either time-constrained and they don't have time to assess a person to really get a specific cause of their back pain, or they don't have the skills and know how to do it. So they say, you know, it's their get out of jail card. Uh, <laughs> you know, you've got nonspecific pain. It doesn't help anybody. In fact, it ends uh, up with a lot of physical and mental anguish. Sure. All right. I don't have any opinions, do I? <laughs> uh, next question, uh, pretty basic one, is stretching good for back pain? Uh, you, well, you know how my answer is going to start on that, and mm -hmm. its assessment will always show uh, whether stretching will uh, help or hurt. I've mentioned how uh, certain stretches fire a stretch reflex and give the person 15 minutes of analgesia. So they think the stretch was a good thing to do, not realizing that they just increased the underlying mechanism so it triggers um, uh, easier in the future. Uh, so uh, let's take a person, for example, who we measure uh, a flexion intolerance. We might have them on a stool and we'll say, sit upright, grab the stool and pull up 10 pounds with each arm. Does that cause your pain? No, no, it doesn't. Good, just put your hands in your lap and slouch. Does that cause your pain? Yeah, a little bit. There it is. Now bring your chin to your chest. Oh, yeah, my toe just went numb. So bending forward, we just proved triggered their back pain. And yet their therapist might have said, before you get out of bed every morning, pull your knees to your chest. And interestingly enough, that will uh, cause 15 minutes of analgesia, and they think they did the right thing and yet pulling the knees to the chest. If they had this particular kind of uh, delamination in the annulus, caused the disc bulge to grow. Uh, and by the way, we measured this. I'm not talking through my hat. We can watch that disc bulge uh, on uh, MRI. Uh, we would take a person and flex them for a while, put them in the MRI and see their disc bulge touching the nerve root. And then 15 minutes, we we get them out of the uh, MRI. They might lay on their tummy. They might sit with a lot of lumbar support. They might stand and push their arms uh, overhead to the ceiling and deeply inhale. And then we remeasure the size of the disc bulge 15 minutes later, and it is now uh, reduced. So we would then say, stop stretching, don't listen to the 15 minutes of analgesia. And in about a week, they start to say, you know, I don't have that need to feed the stretch reflex. And my back pain now is generally less throughout the day. So that is uh, a little bit of a start on is stretching good or bad. I've given you some bad, but now let's talk about the good. Uh, let's take a person who sits a lot uh, throughout the day 
And in some people, not all, but in some, there is a neurological facilitation, it's called neurogenic facilitation of, now many people will say the hip flexors, and yet when we measure it, it isn't the hip flexors, it's purely psoas. So when they stand up, they feel this tightness in the front of their hip, and it's hard for them to get upright and pull their hips through so they can stand at ease uh, and relax. So we might prove to them, we'll show them where their psoas tendon is. Now you can palpate it. We ask them to stretch the hip flexors with a lunge, but they can feel that there is tension there, but it's not in the psoas. And then we show them when they put the arm overhead and strictly push to the ceiling and lean away just a little bit, ah, now they've just stretched the psoas tendon. And when they stand up, they say, you know, all of that uh, is gone. Or I'm just going to move back so you can see me now. Uh, they might have a very strong fascial connection with psoas. So if you follow the work of Tom Myers, for example, in anatomy trains, this is wonderful, wonderful work where uh, uh, we would take his particular science, identify that anterior fascial chain, feel the psoas tension, and then as the arm is stretched to the ceiling, internally and externally rotate the shoulder. And one rotation winds up the fascia, and you can feel it in the psoas by palpating it with your fingers, and the other way releases it. So their particular psoas stretch would be involving winding up and releasing uh, the fascia to have an effect very distally uh, in, the, uh, in the body. Others, I know Bob and Brad did uh, one of our thoracic spine ex, uh, extension stretches for older folks. That was on uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, we might do a standing stretch for office workers. You said uh, at the beginning of the podcast, you like to get up and go for a walk, sitting at your computer every hour. Well, if you stand up, just let the discs equilibrate for maybe uh, 10 or 15 seconds, put the arms overhead, wait another 10 or 15 seconds, lean back and push strictly more overhead, and then finish off with a deep inhalation, jacking the diaphragm up off the pelvic floor, and then release. And when you remeasure, the tension in the uh, extensor fascia and tissues, you will find that it is now uh, relieved, allowing the person to stand with less stress. So again, there's a, a, a bit of an essay on is stretching good, can be very good or very not so good. <laughs> the assessment will always guide the way. Yeah, I think each circumstance is very individual for a question like that, obviously. All right, next question. If someone has strong back muscles, can it help with back pain? Sometimes. <laughs> the science doesn't show a strong relation, which surprises a lot of people. In fact, many people hurt their back in an effort to increase the strength 
thinking that that's going to relieve their back pain. What the science shows actually is if you separate strength from endurance, endurance is much more protective for future back pain than uh, strength is. And this science started off in Denmark uh, when I was a young scientist. And we saw this many times uh, throughout my career. I remember we were studying men who chromed uh, car bumpers for Chrysler. The car bumpers weighed uh, 80 some odd pounds, 40 kilo uh, perhaps. And we had something like 76 workers all doing the same job. So the physical exposure was controlled. 26 of them, I've, and I might be off on my numbers, this is going back quite a few years, uh, but 20 some odd had an acute attack sufficient for them to miss work every year. And the rest of them never had disabling back pain. What do you think that, and, and we spent half a day measuring the health profile of every worker. What do you think the differences were between those who had an acute attack every year and they missed work, otherwise they were fine, versus those who never had a back issue? Do you think they had stronger backs or weaker backs? They probably had stronger backs, but they're probably doing it with improper form. Bingo. That, that's it. So the ones who had stronger backs lifted with their backs and they lifted less with their hips and legs. So they would bend over and pick up the bumpers with their uh, back. And those were the ones who uh, had less muscle endurance, but they were using their backs. Their backs were stronger, but they were disabled uh, at work. The ones who were much more robust had less back strength, but more muscle endurance. And they would bend using a hip hinge and their hips and their legs, pulling their hips through, walking with appropriate control, etc. In other words, they moved better and had better form. So you, you hit the uh, nail on the head. Uh, you, you know, it's an epidemic that's occurring right now with patients coming to see us and probably coming to see you, how many of them have been injured by therapists and trainers doing deadlifts, believing that strength will um, reduce their, their back pain. Um, there are uh, athletic competitions where they will take Olympic lifts and who can do the most of them in a certain period of time or something like that. Well, the curious thing is in the Olympics, they never lift more than once. So endurance isn't part of the equation. Strength is part of it, but they lift perfectly. They never break form. And in fact, if an Olympic lifter gets hurt, it's because they broke form. And then these athletic events that are um, bastardizations of Olympic lifts, they will lift multiple times, they break form, <laughs> which in this, in this expression of endurance strength, uh, that, that's a problem in terms of uh, uh, injury. So always, if you are building strength, and you know, we build athletes, we're, we're all about building strength, but we make sure we build an endurance and a pristine form underneath the movement so that they can build strength with uh, 
so ro some robustness. Um, another thought that comes to mind with muscle strength on the pro side is that having bigger muscles reduces load on joints. And I'm going to talk about our experience with elite bodybuilders. Consider my skinny arm here for uh, a second. And let's say the biceps flex the arm. If I had a, oh, let me talk a little bit more about the mechanics. If I had an object in my hand that weighed five pounds, the bicep connects to the bone uh, one fifteenth of the distance of the lever of the mass. So in other words, for me to hold five pounds at this distance from my elbow requires 75 pounds of force in the bicep because of the mechanical disadvantage to lift five. So the joint pays a penalty now of 75 pounds just to live five pounds. But if I had a bigger bicep and doubled the moment arm, I would now be down to 37 and a half pounds of force. In other words, double the moment arm of my muscle, I just half the load on the joint. And this is exactly what we see in uh, bodybuilders. Massive uh, uh, bulk in the erector spine. In fact, I, uh, one of my, my uh, uh, patients is a, a Mr. Olympia competitor. When I measure the erector spinae bulk in his back, it's twice mine, which is uh, astounding. So when he lifts, uh, just say, uh, I don't know, 400 pounds, uh, his back is only seeing half of the spine load of what I would see because my muscles have half the wrench handle distance to uh, extend my back. So having big muscles spares your joints. Now, here's the interesting thing. Bodybuilders put a lot of mileage on their bodies, but they're so massful and stiff that the stiffness and the mass holds their joints together. But you know if you damage an ACL ligament in your knee, you get joint laxity. Typically, their joints are getting lax. But just like our discussion of obese people, their mass holds their joints together. Then, uh, as a consultant, I will uh, work with them as they return to civilian life. They lose 100 pounds of muscle. They lose the stiffness and the moment arms. Now the joints that were loose but were previously held together with muscle mass, the muscle's gone. Now they ache. Their knees ache. Their spine aches. And when we measure it, it's the uncontrolled micro movements. So my message to them is if they are going to do that to their bodies and put that much mileage on the joints for a long period of time, they, as they return to civilian life, they're still going to have to train a little bit to keep the ache out of their body. And then over time, again, when they reach my age, nature will stiffen the joints and uh, all that looseness will uh, uh, reduce and go away. But if, if they retire in their 30s or early 40s, say, they're going to have to lift and train at a more moderate level for the next 20 years if they want to remain uh, pain-free. But in any way, we'll just finish off the strength. 
if you're a trainer and you're listening to this, there are so many better ways to train back strength than doing deadlifts for the average client. If they're a power lifter, you've got no option, of course. But, uh, you know, if I just simply did a air squat, push one hand into the other, overhead, push the hands, activate the back muscles, squat back and as deep as I like, as long as I'm uh, containing most of the motion to the uh, hips, uh, I can maintain sufficient strength for the average person to avoid back pain and still be very robust for life. But anyway, there seems to be a disconnect between getting someone out of back pain doing stabilization exercise, and then when they're out of pain, the trainer will say, okay, well, now we can start doing deadlifts. Uh-uh. There is a lot of transition exercise before you get through to, uh, to uh, deadlifts. Now, that's in my book, Ultimate Back Fitness and Performance, by the way. I'll put a plug in there on the way to transition through to uh, before you get into the heavy performance, strength, uh, endurance, power type of exercises. So how does someone build endurance for their back then? Because you mentioned that earlier. Great question. We uh, investigated that in several different populations of ordinary people, police, firefighters, uh, different athletic groups, uh, etc. And most of the time, the science kept showing uh, what we call the big three uh, is probably the wisest way to spare the spine and build endurance. So it's those exercises built on a Russian descending pyramid of programming. So I can explain both those things. First of all, we have a spine, which is a flexible rod and no engineer would stack a bunch of oranges and put a load on top and expect it to bear load. So the role of the muscles first and foremost is to stiffen that stack of oranges or stack of vertebrae and allow it to stiffen up and bear load. Uh, so you need guy wires in the front of the spine, in the sides and in the back. So uh, in the back uh, exercise, for most people to start would be a bird dog. We would do that all on all fours on the ground. If they're hip replaced, they might do it standing at a table. Uh, there's all forms of uh, back uh, bird dog exercises. Those are contained in uh, Back Mechanic, my, my book for the lay public. For the side, we would do a various family of uh, side planks. We might start simply on a wall for someone who's just a, a beginner. Can you see me? Yep. Um, where they are uh, side planking on a wall and then slowly they will move uh, supporting the side plank with the elbow and knees and then the elbow and feet. And then we'll do uh, rolling, uh, for example, uh, 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 on the floor, I, I don't know if I can get on the floor because you won't see me, but if I did a front plank and then just tap the elbow and then come back very quickly, I would start to create great rotational power as well, but it's driven by the shoulders and hips and not through the spine itself. So to, to create, in fact, the person 
who I've measured in the world to have the strongest rotational core doesn't do a lot of rotational exercises. They lock their back and they might do a landmine pivoting around the toes. Um, I'll tell you who it is. It's Pavel Satsalin, the, cha the chairman of Strong First. Uh, incredible rotational strength, but he does it through drive. He converts hip power to rotational strength. Mike Tyson would be another example who he doesn't do a lot of spine twisting. It is footwork. It might be a drop step, rotate, hook the lever, come around. You know what I mean? It's footwork through the hips and uh, converting the hip rotational power through a very solid core and then expresses it out uh, the, uh, the, the shoulder. The front of the core mechanism, the abdominals, we might start with a modified curl up, which is very little spine bending. Uh, if you look at the book, you will see how we would de-stress the spine by putting the hands under the lumbar spine, bending one knee to take some tension out of the neural uh, pathway, the sciatic root and the femoral root. And then they just begin stiffening the core with a lateral flare. Don't suck in, don't push out. Just push the fingers out laterally like that. And then lifting the head, neck and shoulders very small amount off the floor. Other people, we might lay them on the floor, opposite arm, opposite leg, hover them up to, uh, sorry, that was the same side. Opposite arm, opposite leg, hover them up to 30 degrees and just tap the arm and foot on the ground every five seconds or so. Um, a few more programming notes. Hold those 10 seconds for the average person. Is it going to get you to the Olympics? No. Uh, will it help with back pain? 95% of the time, and we've measured that, it will help. Um, if you were to do three 10-second holds of the bird dog on the right, three 10-second holds on the left, brief rest, then it's a descending pyramid and set design. So then it would be two on the right, two on the left, one on the right and one on the left. And repeat those for the side plank and whatever you're doing for the abdominals. And then you might go to a four, two, one or a six, four, two or whatever, but keep it as a descending pyramid. As long as there uh, is a motivation for uh, back pain. Uh, oh, the final thing is never do an exercise every day. There's very few things in the health rubric that you should do every day. I mean, I recommend breathing. <laughs> you should continue to do that every day. Uh, you should drink water every day. But everything else, I would suggest, say for the big three, just do them six days a week. Always take that one day to allow complete rest and the adaptations that you've been stimulating through the week have to occur. And some people fail because they never create the adaptation. So don't do anything seven days a week, except breathe and drink water. <laughs> Maybe sleep too. Yeah, yeah. But you know, uh, I suppose you, you could go a, a day without and, and you'd still uh, 
live. But uh, no, I agree. But let's add sleep to that uh, list. Anyway, I don't know if that answers the question. It's a bit of a, a long... I'm sorry I write essays. For you, <laughs> these are not... You're just thorough. The, I, I hope I am. The people who come and see us, no one gets back pain and they say, oh, we'll go to BackFitPro or see Miguel or one of the clinicians. Every one of them has already seen several clinicians and they've failed. You know, if, please go see your clinician and I hope you get better. But if you don't, those are the people that we see. So we have to be thorough. I should say for our uh, listening audience, this is on video on YouTube where Dr. McGill was demonstrating all these things he's talking about. So you can visually actually see it. All right. My next question is, what is more important, spine stability or mobility? Yeah, I know there are some people who say, oh, it's always more important to have mobility first or stability first. And the answer is we're talking about a balance here, and it depends. If you have sufficient stability, then you would probably do well by getting more mobility. Uh, uh, if, if you have sufficient mobility, then you probably would do better with uh, stability. And the, the other uh, beginning question would be, do you have pain or not? Um, so if they have back pain, the assessment will show what is needed, either stability, uh, or mobility. And it might be, uh, not back mobility. It might be mobility at the hip. Uh, for example, you'll see someone with a prearthritic hip and they can't sit with full hip flexion. So when they sit down, uh, they run out of room because of the arthritis right here and any more hip flexion occurs by turning the pelvis and the spine. So if they sit in a low couch, for example, they have put their spine in distress. And if that is their particular pain trigger, they've got back pain. So what can you do about mobility in that prearthritic hip? And the answer is not too much. You might be able to get a little bit of life uh, left out of it with some gluteal activation exercise sometimes. But for those people, the hip replacement, and by the way, I'm one of them, uh, back pain disappears after they've allowed mobility to return in the hip with a fake hip, a prosthetic um, hip. Uh, but going back to our science, uh, one of my, I think he was my last PhD student, uh, Professor Jordan Cannon, who's now a professor of, <laughs> at, at, at my old alma mater, uh, University of Waterloo. Um, it was so interesting when you looked at the work done by Tim Hewitt on ACL injury. So knee ligament injury, uh, women in the NCAA basketball have six times the ACL injury rate than men. And he wondered why. Um, well, he found it was a combination of things, but lack of core stability, not mobility, lack of core stability was one of the major predictors. And he uh, devised experiments where he would put the women on a box and they would jump off the box and land on the ground. And if they landed on the ground and the knee hinge, ankle hinge, and hip hinge were in line, uh, that was a very protective motor control pattern. Then the ones who were at risk of getting ACL injury when they landed, 
the knees would buckle inward just a little bit. What he found was doing our big three coupled with hip external rotation cured that flawed mechanic. So when they land, the core stiffness allowed the gluteal muscles to pull the knees out and they would land with a uh, resilient uh, pattern because the knee tracks where the hip tells it to go because of the gluteal muscles drive internal external rotation, which affect knee valgus and mobility. The knee goes where the hip drives it to go and the ankle allows it to go. So talk about stability and mobility. Uh, it, it depends on what the person was lacking in their particular mechanism as to what was uh, most important. But he did trials for ACL injury with the core stability uh, exercises and, and the hip mobility. And he brought the injury rates of females, which were formerly six times, right in line with the uh, males. We found exactly the same thing uh, with back injury, uh, generally speaking as well. So uh, there's a, a, a little bit of a start. Uh, I can go on with more uh, uh, essays if you like. Uh, in terms of transitioning out of back pain and then moving on to performance, uh, because we live in a linkage, the skeleton requires proximal stability to create distal mobility. Let me give you an example in the shoulder and then I'll move to the hip and spine. Say I could bench press 300 pounds. If I bench press 300 pounds and then I stand up, say I'm on the, on the offensive line in, the, uh, in, in a football game, American football, and I can bench press that much, if I don't have proximal stability, the pec muscle, the bench press muscle, distal to the shoulder joint creates the effect, the pushing or the punch. But proximal to the shoulder joint, that same muscle bends my shoulder away. So if all I use is the bench press muscle, boxing on the NFL, I simply collapse. But if I arrest all the proximal movement with core stability, 100% of that muscle activity is now directed distally. So you see with that principle, all distal athleticism comes from core stability. You have to fire a cannon out of a battleship, not out of a canoe. You've heard that expression, I'm sure, many times. So in terms of hip power, if I was running, I extend using my gluteal and hamstring muscles. But if the core is not stiffened and controlling motion, the spine bends because of the gluteal activity and you leak energy. You can't sprint as fast. You can't run, plant, and cut very, uh, uh, very quickly. So you're more um, apt to injure because of the stress concentration of the spine bend and the performance goes down as well. So what do you need first? Core stability or hip mobility? 
it all depends on whether there's pain or not, what the activity is, what the person currently has. The assessment will show what is needed, and it will also guide the best way to get that person there, given their age, their injury history, their uh, body segment proportions, et cetera, et cetera. I wish it was easy. If it was easy, everybody could do it. <laughs> All right, next question. So one of your goals for people is to stop picking the scab. Can you explain what that means? Yeah. When we started our scientific investigations four decades ago, we found that pain and injury comes from stress concentrations, but you change where the stress concentration is by moving and changing posture. If you don't believe me, go to jujitsu class. So if you put someone in a submission hold and you don't have the angle right, you don't create the stress concentration and the pain doesn't occur. But if you change the angle ever so slightly and migrate that stress concentration, the person taps out. Think of laying in bed, a very benign activity. If you lay in bed and don't change posture, you will become uncomfortable. You will create stress concentrations. If you ignore that discomfort alarm, shall we say, uh, those stress concentrations turn from discomfort to pain. And if you ignore that alarm, shall we say, of pain, you will become injured and it's called a bed sore. So there is an example of prolonged stress leading to uh, an injury. So we use this concept of migrating stress away from where the concentration is to stop picking the scab. Consider stubbing your toe. If I stub my toe once, it'll hurt. But if I do it every day, after a few days, I just lightly touch my toe and it will scream. It's highly sensitized. Am I going to do exercises and strengthen my toe to get rid of the pain? No, I'm going to stop stubbing my toe. So this is what we do in terms of stop picking the scab. And we use this entity or technique called spine hygiene. And you can think of spine hygiene as a collection of movement hacks simply educating the person on how to move in a way that migrates the stress away from the thing that's uh, causing pain. There are general principles. What is poor posture? What is posture that causes pain? Well, consider holding a joint against gravity. If I sat at the computer, shrugged, my upper trapezius will become very painful. And in fact, people become disabled with this because of the stress due to that posture. If we relieve that posture, migrate the stress away, the uh, medical situation uh, disappears. So there was a principle, holding a body part against gravity is, is something that can be addressed with a movement hack or appropriate spine uh, hygiene. Allowing appropriate rest after a stimulating bout of load would be uh, another principle. Reducing shear loading. So I could do a, uh, a Paloff press, for example, 
which is a shear load on my spine. Or I could do a side plank, which is a three-point bend, which is just a bend through my spine, but there's no shear load. Uh, so that's what a lot of uh, movement hacks are trying to do. They're trying to eliminate the shear load. Compression is stabilizing to a joint. Uh, if you load a joint in compression, it becomes stiff. The, the neutral zone, as it's known as, it disappears as you load a spine in compression. It's all held together. There is no neutral zone. So all of these things are all core principles, pardon the pun, um, keeping the thrust lines. So if I was to pull a cable and I pull it off center of my spine, I'm creating not only a shear, but a twisting torque, which is very expensive for something like the spine. But if I pull through the core, through the spine, there is no twisting torque. If I combine it with a drop step and pull, now I'm creating a very uh, athletic, highly transferable uh, movement hack to pulling open a door, to pulling an opponent uh, in a combat cage. All of these things enhance athleticism and uh, uh, reduce stress concentration. So that's what we mean by stopping picking the scab, using movement hacks or spine hygiene to rebuild that person to enjoy life, be robust, etc. I, I like the term spine hygiene. I've never heard that. It's very easy to understand the meaning. All right, next question. Do you recommend using an elastic wearable back support? I'm, I'm curious now. What do you think my short answer is? Depends. Yes. <laughs> I, as I said, I, it's not that I'm trying to avoid the answer. I'll give you an answer, but it's not a singular answer. It always has context. So there's been a lot of studies on this over the years. And I, actually, I've been highly involved in this 20 years ago. Uh, again, as an ex expert witness in uh, legal cases, you'll go back. Are you old enough to remember going to Home Depot? And when you went in there, every employee had to wear an elastic stretch belt around the waist. In fact, it was a mandatory condition for employment. Do you remember that? I don't. I'm 35. I don't know if I remember that. Okay. Well, it was before your time. And uh, there, was, there were studies done that suggested wearing an elastic stretch belt reduced the risk of injury. Well, I, I became involved in this and really investigated the science and the context of it all. And at the end of the day, it wasn't the people out on the floor getting hurt anyway. It was the cashiers. So, uh, you know, uh, picking something up, moving along the, the, the belt, what turned out to be more stressful than, than being on the uh, floor. But to, you know, we, we looked at studies of uh, men and women who loaded the cargo bays of airplanes, both wearing belts and not wearing belts. We looked at effect on blood pressure. Uh, varicose veins in the testicles was another, the varicocele, as it's known, was another uh, side effect reported uh, in one study. 
Uh, some studies showed there was a, a, a dependence on the belt. And if you wore a belt for a while and stopped wearing the belt, that was a time of a higher uh, incidence of uh, acute back injury. So I was then asked to write the guidelines for the uh, Canadian Occupational uh, Health and Safety uh, Group. I did it for several companies. I did it in the U.S. And the guidelines in a nutshell were this. We cannot find justifiable science on balance that would uh, say wearing a belt at work all day long prevents back injury. But if an individual gets relief, they would get a belt if they've been assessed for cardiovascular concerns, because we know belts um, affect that. Uh, has there been an ergonomic assessment and a spine hygiene <laughs> assessment done uh, at their job? I mean, I don't care what term you use, uh, uh, movement hack or, or ergonomics or, or whatever it happens to be, but make sure that has been done uh, for their particular job. That they do exercises which create the very best natural abdominal belt and support uh, that they uh, could possibly have, and that the goal is not to hook them on the belt, but to get them over a rough spot and then wean them off the belt. Um, now, last year, or was it this past winter, or the winter before, I had two people show up at the doorstep here at BackFit Pro who had slipped on ice and really cracked their pelvic ring. So the whole pelvic ring was loose. They went to a chiropractor who manipulated them. Explain mm -hmm. that to me. Uh, someone has had a traumatic impact to their pelvis and someone thought it appropriate to manipulate them. One came on crutches and one came in a wheelchair. Both had fractured pelvic rings. They wore a intertrochanteric elastic belt that we gave them for about four or six weeks. And then it allowed them to hold together and heal. Um, I've had uh, a couple of rackets players that come to mind. One uh, tennis star and uh, one uh, national squash champion who had way overtrained, deep loaded split squats, lunges. And they'd loosened up the pelvic ring and they wore a stretch uh, belt uh, between the trochanters and the iliac crests for a while as they stiffened up uh, to pull it all together. So there you go. Their uh, systematic widespread use in a company, no, it's, it's not justifiable. For individuals, there are uh, occasions. Sure. All right. My last question is you often talk about the importance of walking for back pain. Would you care to elaborate on that? I've already said how when you map the course of a person's orthopedic life, the walking issue quite often changes when they're young sitting. If they have a open fissured, disc bulge, sitting will cause their pain and walking will give it relief. As they get older and a little bit more arthritis around that unstable joint has now grown and 
uh, some some spurs and uh, uh, gnarly labrums of the uh, vertebral body, etc., causes them to get pain from walking. We would measure changes in disc bulges from standing and walking as a reliever in the younger person and sitting causing the disc bulge to grow. So if we have a younger person and they have a little bit of joint instability with that kind of disc bulge and walking gives them relief, we now have two things. Can we optimize the style of walking together with the exposure? And as it turns out, they might, we ask them, well, how far can you walk without getting pain? And they say, well, I can walk for an hour, but if I walk for over an hour, I get more pain. I say, good, never walk more than an hour. Or they might say, oh, walking after 10 minutes, I get pain. Good, you, every time you walk for 10 minutes, you've guaranteed failure. We, we can't do that. Walk for eight minutes, but do it three or four times a day. Now you've interval trained guaranteeing uh, success. We were, I believe, the first to measure the role of arm swing. So if you don't walk with sufficient arm swing, and it's the hallmark of people who have chronic back pain, they walk usually slightly flexed with frozen shoulders. And this is their gait pattern, which causes more static chronic load on their spine. But if they transfer, we'll say to them, swing your arms. And invariably, they swing the arms about the elbows, still with frozen shoulders. The problem is not addressed. We show them how to jazz arms, jazz knees, and swing the arms from the shoulders, storing and recovering elastic energy in a crisscross fashion as their right leg and hip flexes, the um, left shoulder flexes creating an elastic stretch, which then is recovered elastically as they walk. It's so interesting that if you go back to the Roman scrolls of over 2,000 years ago, Caesar, General Julius Caesar, wrote in his battle plan, they would encamp 30, they know that their enemy was encamped 30 miles away. Nightfall came. Caesar would march his legions 30 miles through the night and create a surprise attack because the, per the, the opposite side, the enemy, couldn't conceive that anyone would march 30 miles through the night, and they falsely thought that they were safe. But he taught exactly the mechanics that we found in our scientific invest investigation Posture matters, it matters incredibly. Ears over the shoulders, loosen up, heel to toe walking, swinging the arms about the shoulders, taking full advantage of the storage and recovery of elastic energy, eliminating chronic stress concentrations, reducing pain and enhancing performance. And that was part of his battle strategy. So, uh, there's a, a little bit of a start, but by the way, another thought just came to mind. We might take a younger person who says, you know, I, I can, I can walk, but they're slightly antalgic. Their chest is forward. Their chin is poking. We might give them a backpack with uh, say eight kilos of load low in the backpack. What that does 
is it acts like an erector spinae muscle with a bigger mechanical advantage. It jacks them up and then we'll say, go for a walk over a golf course or a slowly undulating surface. And they'll say, oh, doc, you're magical. You, that, that was the secret sauce. You just cured my back pain. And uh, well, you know, I didn't do anything to cure their back pain except give them an understanding of the mechanics and the best tool to use to create the adaptation that they need to get them on their way. Anyway, there's a little start on uh, the mechanics of walking. Well, you have gave us a wealth of knowledge today, and thank you for that. So I'll mention your website again, which is backfitpro.com. And you have, how many books do you have out? Uh, <laughs> too many to count? No, oh. no, I've, I've got two in the works. Oh. <laughs> so I, I, I've got four, I, I will say, are, uh, are out uh, that, that are, there's, there's low back disorders, which I wrote for clinicians. It's fully referenced and uh, uh, covers all of the issues that we talked today from a very scientific essay uh, style, trying to present both sides of when to consider the issue from this perspective and when to consider it from the alternate. Um, I wrote a book for the lay public called Back Mechanic, which guides the person through a self-assessment and then based on that, what they should do to wind down their pain and then build themselves back up again. Uh, the next book is called Ultimate Back Fitness and Performance, which was designed for savvy lay people, people who like to train, but they don't get the transition right between getting out of pain and they go back to their old training and they break down and repeat the pain cycle again. So it's how to transition then into uh, training all the way through to high performance training. And I give many examples of some world records that I've been involved with uh, uh, championship performance in many, many different sports. And uh, let's see, oh, gift of injury. That was a, a book I wrote with uh, the man who has squatted the highest amount of load in human history, 1,306 pounds. Uh, he came to me as uh, a very painful, injured athlete in 2013. And when he came, I said, you know, I, I don't know if I can get you out of pain, but here's my suggestion for you. And he just looked at me and he said, good. When I'm out of pain, I want my old record back. I want my world record back. And I said, well, if you can do that, we'll write a book together about it. So <laughs> he did it. And I ended up writing a book. And it turns out he was a, a wonderful writer. And he's become uh, one of my best friends, Brian Carroll. With, uh, so oh. that was his story of uh, not only the very emotional story, but it was how he got back to squatting 1,306 pounds from... Uh, very substantial uh, fracture and uh, disc herniations. That's a ridiculous load. It is when you can think of getting even under a thousand pounds and what that feels like for your body. And to play a trick on your mind to 
control the thrust lines. If you're out one millimeter, you've lost the lift and you can't correct it. That's the other thing that's going to crush you. So, uh, and, and you know, another, you might want to get him on your, your podcast one time to tell you the mental process of having a thought, which is what strength is. It begins as a thought and then convert that thought into a very, very dense pulse train down through the nerves. Only a very few people can do that. Create that density of neural drive and then organize the body to receive that, activate the muscles. And uh, by the way, that, that lift is on YouTube. He made it look easy. <laughs> and yet I said, you know, many people have said to him, can you do it again? He says, no, I did one perfect lift and that was it. And, you know, I, I used to, uh, with my uh, students, I would say, um, you know, who knows how to bench press? Everybody puts up their hand. And we, we then do a one-hour bench press workshop. It turns out no one has a clue how to bench press. They thought it was lowering the weight and pushing it back up again. Uh, and, and we would add, you know, substantial proportions of load with more safety and resilience to, to most of them once we taught them the mechanics and the mental process of, of how to do it. So all of these things are uh, highly technical. And if, if, if you think you know how to deadlift or, or squat, um, you know, <laughs> they should hang out with, with, with some of the people I do, like, you know, world's strongest man. How do you do that? And you will get the most wonderful three-hour lesson on uh, how to do a single little thing and you thought you knew something about it yeah. <laughs> these people uh, they are special and world champs for a reason yeah well thank you for joining us today yeah thanks so much mike and uh as you know i've been on bob and brad before uh, i love them both so please uh extend my uh, uh best wishes uh to them and uh, hopefully we'll see you again. Yeah.